With March of this year came a diplomatic surprise. On the 6th, representatives from Iran and Saudi Arabia met in Beijing for talks. Four days later, the two regional rivals announced that they had decided to normalise relations. It was an announcement that was as surprising as it was historic. Over the coming months and years, this deal to normalise is likely to dramatically shift the trajectory of the Middle East. But why have they chosen to normalise now? What is each side getting from the deal? And what's the significance of China brokering the deal? My name is Hugo Goodridge. Welcome back to the New Arab Voice. Relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran have had their ups and downs. During the early part of the 21st century, there was a fairly steady decline and reached a critical mass when Saudi Arabia executed Shia cleric and critic of the government in Saudi Arabia, Nimr al-Nimr, in January 2016. Protesters in Iran responded to this by setting fire to the Saudi embassy. Since then, the two sides have been at loggerheads, with their disagreements spreading out across the region into conflicts and other political disputes, and internationally with the likes of Russia and the US. Such was the length and apparent intensity of their rivalry that news that they had restored relations came as quite a surprise, as did the pace of developments. No sooner had they announced the restoration of relations, there were talks of visits by heads of state and meetings between foreign ministers. Iranian Foreign Minister Hussein Amir Abdullahian spoke with reporters in Tehran on March 19th. The last message exchanged between Iran and Saudi Arabia in the last 24 hours was Iran's announcement of its availability for the Foreign Minister's meeting and also the suggestion of three venues for the meeting. We will agree on the time and place of the meeting as soon as possible after coordination between us. After so many years of animosity, why restore relations now? I think Iran has been wanting to restore relations with Saudi Arabia for some time. It actually goes back to the presidency of Hassan Rouhani, the previous Iranian president. This is Vali Nasser, Professor of International Affairs and Middle East Studies at John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. The execution of Nimr al-Nimr and the attack on the Saudi embassy occurred during Rouhani's term in office. But after that, he was eager to repair relations with GCC countries and repair relations with Saudi Arabia. But it was the Saudis that were reluctant to accommodate Uh, They blamed Iran for the war in Yemen, but but the Iranian position has been for a very long time that they want relations with Saudi Arabia. They want to get past the the episode of, of the breakdown. As Vali explains, Iran was driven by a combination of desires and realizations. Uh, There is always a domestic constituency in Iran, which is particularly close to the uh, ruling order, uh, which wants access to Hajj and Mecca. 
and their inability to go to Mecca is not, uh, it does exact a cost at some point. Uh, secondly, is that the Iranians increasingly found that not having relations with Saudi Arabia actually empowers the United States much more to follow an aggressive policy towards them and also gradually push Saudi Arabia and other GCC countries into an alliance with Israel. And this particularly accelerated after Iranians attacked uh, Saudi oil facilities in 2019. So they also learned that they cannot bully Saudi Arabia back to the table. And therefore, uh, they have to find a way to uh, de-escalate tensions. If Iran's realization that it cannot use force to get its way with Saudi Arabia and also wants to be able to perform Hajj unimpeded prompted them to sit at the table for discussions, then what brought Saudi Arabia to the table? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One has been developing for about three years, and the other is more significant going forward. This is Dr. Christian coates Ulrichsen, fellow for the Middle East at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. We're now in 2023. Mohammed bin Salman announced Vision 2030 in 2016, seven years ago, exactly in April. And it's now seven years until 2030, so we're halfway. Mohammed bin Salman needs a period of calm and stability in the region so he can focus relentlessly on implementing and putting into practice and reality the associated GIGA projects uh, such as NEOM, the line, all of the major initiatives that have become associated as critical parts of Vision 2030. And until now, they have existed mainly as aspirational uh, videos and simulations in, in plans. He's now got to put those plans into reality. And so for that to happen, he's really got to focus exclusively almost on, on domestic issues, on domestic policy. Vision 2030 is the ambitious brainchild of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman which is designed to diversify the Saudi economy and move away from its dependence on oil. Part of Vision 2030 is attracting big sporting and entertainment events, such as Formula One races and wrestling events. But it also includes mega projects, like the construction of high-tech cities of the future. Hosting such events and undertaking such construction projects do require a general environment of calm and stability. Missile and drone attacks by Iran and Iranian allies on Saudi oil facilities have not been found to foster such an environment. Additionally, Christian explained that the US response to these attacks also fed into the Saudi decision to normalize relations. I think there had been an assumption in Riyadh, perhaps in Abu Dhabi as well, that especially when it came to Iran, their interests and U.S. interests were effectively the same. And Donald Trump, in his own characteristic way, indicated that wasn't the case. And so we saw pretty much straight away both the Saudis and separately the UAE begin to reach out to Iran to try and de-escalate because they perhaps felt much more vulnerable than they might otherwise have been. And so the UAE uh, reached out directly to Iran in 2019. The Saudis began to reach out indirectly through intermediaries in Iraq and in Oman, and obviously have now sealed the deal in uh, China, in Beijing in March. A policy that proved generally ineffective on one side and a desire for stability on the other 
has pushed the two sides together and got them talking. But what does each side want from the normalization of relations? First, Iran. So for the Iranian regime, it's important to tell its population, its constituency, etc., that no, we're not isolated, right? Secondly, it also has the benefit of saying that the Saudis are no longer subscribing to the American-Israeli plan of action for Iran. Isolate, attack, you know, build a wall around them. So the Saudis are definitely going down, down a different path. And, and I think that, uh, that the Iranians sort of see this deal with Saudi Arabia as a way of normalizing their relations with the broader Arab world all the way to North Africa. And I think reducing Saudi opposition to Iran in all kinds of international forums is important to them. Additionally, Fadi believes that the normalization deal is important for Iran because it could help dull the current or any future impacts of the Abraham Accords which saw a number of Arab states normalize relations with Israel. If Iran has normal relations with UAE, with Bahrain, with Saudi Arabia, and they're trading, they have embassies, it's more likely that these Arab countries will treat Abraham Accords more as a bilateral uh, economic technology and also security relationship with Israel, but not as a war pact against Iran. Breaking out from international isolation would certainly be of benefit to Iran, as would limiting the grander geopolitical impacts of the Abraham Accords. And for Saudi Arabia? Well, I think for the Saudi perspective, the preoccupation is finding a way to get themselves out of the military intervention in Yemen, which began in March 2015, so it's been eight years plus and has not secured for the Saudis any form of military or operational or strategic victory or gain. And certainly for the last year or couple of years, the Saudis have been trying to find a way to extricate themselves from Yemen in a way that secures minimal Saudi security objectives, but also allows them to get out. The war in Yemen is a major issue for Saudi Arabia. Since 2015, Saudi Arabia has been actively engaging in and supporting military action in Yemen against the Iran-backed Houthi movement. The conflict has killed hundreds of thousands of people, both directly and indirectly, through famine and the destruction of healthcare facilities. There have been numerous accusations of war crimes and crimes against humanity levelled against both sides. And in recent years, the conflict has grounded to a sort of stalemate. A ceasefire was called in 2022 and has unofficially continued since then. For Saudi Arabia, the calm and stability they desire cannot be achieved if the war in Yemen continues. Unfortunately for them, the deal in March appears to already be paying dividends with the Houthi Supreme Political Council meeting with a delegation from Saudi Arabia in the Yemeni capital on April 9th. The Houthis in Yemen are not under the direct control of Iran, but would generally be considered as Iranian-backed forces. And in light of the normalisation deal, questions have been raised about the use of proxy forces across the region. These militias around the region are treated by Iran as a military, as part of their military strategic assets. So the Saudis have 
you know, or UAE have F F-35 fighters, or they get advanced missiles from the United States Advanced Air Force, well, Iran says, okay, we have Hezbollah, etc. Right. So it is not as if because they signed the deal and they're going to open embassies that the Saudis are going to stop building their their military and that they're not going to keep investing in all kinds of things to try to balance out Iran. And so the Iranians are not going to say just because we signed a deal with you, we're just going to leave the region and completely disarm ourselves. Much as normalization deal will not put an end to militias, nor will it put an end to massive arms spending. But it does represent a step back, and the chance that these elements might be used in any sort of military confrontation has been slightly lessened. And if you were to ask the civilian population of Yemen, that can only be a good thing. For both Saudi Arabia and Iran, they will both be looking for the other party to stop tacitly or even openly supporting uh, different groups that have been trying to destabilise in, the, in their view regional stability. So Saudi Arabia obviously believes itself to be encircled by Iran's proxies. Uh, Houthis, obviously, different groups in Iraq at different times, uh, obviously Hezbollah in, in Lebanon. So there may be a desire to reach an agreement on what dialing down some of the support from non-state actors. Iranian proxy forces across the region have proven to be a valuable asset for the regime in Tehran, and they are unlikely to pull them back from regional affairs for free. One concession that Iran will likely seek from Saudi Arabia is an end to their alleged financial backing of the news outlet Iran International. A Persian-language news outlet, Iran International is known for its coverage of human rights violations, separatism in Iran, political developments, LGBTQ plus rights and women's rights in Iran. The channel effectively serves as a media platform for the Iranian opposition. The ink is still drying on the normalisation deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. But in addition to the political and regional gains and concessions, it is anticipated that money and investment will likely enter the picture sooner rather than later. Well, we've certainly seen statements from Saudi officials that they intend to invest and that this seems to be not just that a cold peace will take root, for example, like Jordan and Israel, that they certainly anticipate it being the beginning of a much more functional relationship that includes an economic component. So so this trade obviously would give Iran more, more economic income. It would probably uh, relieve some of the inflationary pressure and maximum pressure put on them. But the Iran's economy, you're right, needs investment because it needs job. Iran just doesn't need only cash. It needs investment. This would all be well and good. But Iran remains subject to a raft of heavy US and EU sanctions that are designed to limit what business can be conducted with and by Iran. Now, obviously, the US sanctions, international sanctions on Iran would be complicating. Having said that, we've had US sanctions on Russian entities for almost a decade since the original invasion of Crimea and parts of eastern Ukraine in 2014. And that hasn't stopped the Saudis or other Gulf partners of the US from working with 
sanctions Russian entities. And I think what we've seen is that the US uh, or the, the Saudis and others have just seen these sanctions and effectively chosen when and how to comply. And we may see that also with Iran. The Saudis say almost to the US, okay, well, stop us if you want. We don't know whether the whether the GCC countries can do this in an above the water way that would not get them entangled with the US Treasury. But at least at the, on the face of it, right after the first uh, meeting in, in, in China, uh, the uh, Saudi finance minister dangled this, that if everything goes well, we're ready to start investing in Iran. Now, they've done this in other countries, like when they repaired relations with Turkey, Saudi Arabia and UAE both invested in Turkey. After years of basically not being in talking terms with the president of Turkey, but then you didn't have the wall of sanctions in Turkey. So in Iran, we don't know. But down the road, sort of economic integration is what hardliners want. Economic integration is also usually a Saudi tool of exerting influence and maintaining influence. At a time when petrodollars that are their maximum, Saudi Arabia, UAE, whether it's in relations with Egypt, Pakistan, Turkey, etc., they are basically using their economic capabilities as a very effective diplomatic tool. And so the expectation should be that they probably, at some point in time, that will play in with Iran as well. Now, how it does, in what way, you know, remains to be seen. While the normalization deal revolves around Iran and Saudi Arabia, orbiting closely are the US and China. The announcement of the normalization deal was a surprise, but the fact that the deal was brokered in China and signed in Beijing, that was an even greater surprise. Even the most casual observer of foreign policy will likely know that the US and Iran have what could be generously described as a pretty toxic relationship. While the US and Saudi Arabia have been close allies for a number of years, with some going as far to describe Saudi Arabia as a client state of the US. Most people will likely also be aware that the US and China have a fairly intense geopolitical rivalry. So why did China play broker to the deal? For Iran, it seems like a fairly obvious choice. Iran has been drifting eastward because of US sanctions. I mean, it, it really, really became much more economically integrated into China when Trump with maximum pressure forcing Europe to cut all sorts of trade, technology, manufacturing, etc. relationship with Iran. But that also means that the Chinese have certain leverage over Iran, which the Saudis understood was valuable here. Right. Iran has no relations with the U.S. U.S. has been preaching containment of Iran. When President Biden went to Saudi Arabia a year ago, his, he was trying to uh, get the Saudis to recognize Israel and then for them to form a NATO against Iran. So the Saudis know that the Americans cannot broker a peace between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And the war path that the United States wants to go on, the Saudis are not on board because they're going to get bloodied in it. So this reliance of Iran on, on China was used by Saudi Arabia in a very effective way. While both sides sought to restore relations, by Vali Nassar's assessment, the Saudis in particular had difficulty in trusting Iran, but were able to use the leverage that China holds over Iran to secure cooperation. 
And the irony is, and the Saudis understood this, that the part of Iranian political structure, the hardliners, who have been the advocates of look east policy, who have been saying that there is no West to look at, let's look east, are in no position to place spoilers in a deal that China signed. In other words, you, you, you basically, they have to drink their own their own medicine. So, so they wanted the China East policy. Now here are the Chinese putting skin in the game, putting their reputation. And so the revolutionary guards, the hardliners are not going to be the usual spoilers they always were with Europe. Getting China to become involved and then having the whole process unfold in China, I think is a strategic move by the Saudis and Iranians to signal that they are serious about involving a very influential third party that is not going to pick and choose favorites. They're going not going to take sides. The Chinese uh, foreign policy of not interfering in domestic or political issues, I think, is something that appeals both to Saudi Arabia and to Iran. Again, it's contrasted to the US, for example, and much of the Western world. And China is heavily reliant on oil and gas in the Gulf. So are many other East Asian states. And so for them, any disruption, any instability in the Gulf would have an immediate and serious effect on energy security in China and elsewhere. If the deal being brokered by China works for Iran and Saudi Arabia, then it also works for China. Diplomatically, they look pretty good. But it also greatly reduces the risk of oil and gas shipments to China being impacted by any potential outbreaks of violence. The move also sends a message from Riyadh to Washington, a message which is really a continuation of a message that they have been sending since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I think the Saudis are signalling that they're not going to take sides. The Any challenge or any breakdown in relations between the US and China is not something that concerns Saudi Arabia. And they're going to continue to maintain working relationships that put their projection of Saudi interests first. And I think that's probably what has happened. I think we've seen that also with responses to Russia and Ukraine. The US has been slowly withdrawing from the Middle East, extracting themselves from conflicts and telling nation states to sort their own problems out. But in spite of the fact that it was China who brokered this deal, the US-Saudi relationship will survive. The US bases that exist in Saudi Arabia aren't going anywhere. The vast arms sales to the Saudis aren't going to stop. In fact, Valley believes that the deal could, on the one hand, be of benefit to the US. I think the outcome of the Iran-Saudi deal is actually good for the US because the US did not want to fight another war in the region. The U.S. is busy with Ukraine. Every bullet it has, it has to give to Ukraine uh, to shore up its defenses. It, it really did not want to have, a, have to fight in the region. Uh, the U.S. did not want the price of oil to skyrocket because the Iranians would hit Aramco again or something like that, right? So all of this is, is, is pretty good. It's, it's the, I guess it's the China factor in it. And what it says about Saudi Arabia's willingness now to go its own way, that is the most problematic part of this for the U.S. But this deal is, uh, you know, what it says about Saudi Arabia and what it says about China and its role in the region and where things may go from here on is perhaps what should be really watering to the U.S.
not the Iran part of it. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodrich. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region.